Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. very happy today because my guest is Charles Tang, a serial entrepreneur that is currently the founder of Instant eStore. For those of you who don't know, Instant eStore is an all-in-one e-commerce solution that is currently serving thousands of clients. Thank you very much for being here with me, Charles. Hey, Kevin. How are you doing? Glad to be on the show. Okay, perfect. The question that I always start with everyone that I have on is I'm always curious about the founding story and how people start the entrepreneurial journey in the first place. So take me back. How did you become an entrepreneur and how did you land on Instant eStore? Right. Yeah, so I guess, you know, for like a lot of people, my entrepreneurial journey started by accident, if you will, right? Um, Two key events sort of uh, changed the course of my life, literally. But first was when uh, I went to um, study A-levels, you know, in the UK, right? This was when, uh, way back, uh, when Sony first launched uh, PlayStation 1, you know, if you can remember that long, right? So, you know, uh, Sony being a Japanese company, they used to just launch the uh, games machine in Japan first, and they didn't launch it internationally one year later, okay? So being, you know, being a, a teenager and loving to play games, obviously, I knew when it was uh, launched, so I was trying to buy in the UK, right? Um, I knew it was priced at 300 US dollars. I think it was 299 US dollars. Um, and I saw an advert to sell um, the PlayStation 1 in the UK f- uh, for, you know, for a certain sum of money. So I called them and I asked them how much it was, you know, and they told me it was 550 pounds, right? Um, I mean, my math is not that great, but 550 pounds does not equate to 300 US dollars no matter how you, how you do it, right? So I was like, you know, why is that such a big increase? And they say, you know, obviously we've got to import it and yada, yada, yada. So, but I saw that in the ad, they said, wholesale inquiry is welcome. Yeah. So I said, okay, fine. You know, uh, what if I buy wholesale? How much would it be then? So that guy told me if we bought wholesale, it'd be 350 pounds. You know, way, way more palatable. Um, and the next question literally uh, sort of changed or um, got me into the entrepreneurial journey, right? So I asked him, how many units do I need to buy? To qualify for wholesale and he said two <laughs> so you know two units right so it, it was a, a did set by order 10 units um on my credit card and uh, i still, you know advertised it for sale for 450 and you know the, the first one i pocketed a thousand pounds right extra pocket money in the end i think i managed to sell about 50 units of the playstation one um so there was it started my entrepreneurial journey but my life really changed um when i then learned how to code and build websites yeah, uh, I built websites to do, you know, sell uh, the PlayStation uh, plus a few other things. It was during my first year uh, summer holidays, came back to Penang and my cousin told me, you know, I've got a friend who sells uh, video CDs. Okay. So for those of you who are not well versed on what video CDs are, 
this is the precursor to Netflix, the precursor to DVDs. Okay, so th these are like movies on video in on CD, CD-ROM format. Okay, it was very popular in in Asia, but not elsewhere in the world. Yeah, so you know, my cousin's like my friend sells VCDs. Why don't you go, you know, talk to him and uh, build him a site and make some extra pocket money? Yeah, so I went there, told him, you know, why do you want to sell VCDs uh, in in Penang when you can sell it all over the world? Right. After talking to him for about two hours, he said, "If it's so good, why don't you do it?" I'll supply you and you sell it, uh, you know, online. So uh, he gave me a stack of CDs, uh, VCDs. And, you know, for those of us who are in Asia, I need to add this uh, caveat there, right? So these VCDs are original VCDs, not the pirated ones. Okay. Very, very important. I, there I is a reputation amongst the VCDs. I, I'd say it's kind of, it's kind of like the, the Sketchy, street right? seller. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. So, so these are the, uh, original uh, license versions yeah mm. so he gave me a stack of those i remember taking it and uh, you know building the site overnight uh slept at five in the morning right and at 12 the next day i woke up checked my email and lo and behold I got seven orders seven orders from people in the u.s who didn't know me okay so just imagine that i you know posted out at five in the morning 12 in the afternoon i got seven orders um that rapidly it grew to six figures. I mean, we did more than 100,000 in the first month. Uh, not, not the first month, after three months. Yeah, before I finished my summer holidays, we were doing six figures, more than $100,000 every single month. Um, and I continued doing that even while I was studying in, in the UK. Uh, at the end of the first year, we were making something like about six point something mil um, revenue, right? Revenue. Yeah. Uh, but that literally changed my life because, you know, I've always been taught, a, you know, you should study hard, go to a good university get a good job so you can make some decent money, right? So I was like, you know, bypassing the uh, university and getting good job. Uh, so I thought, you know, uh, I quit university and, uh, you know, dove head first into this. Uh, of course, you know, when this took off, a lot of people then came to us and say, you know, Charles, could you build this store for me? Could you build this store for me, right? After doing it a few times, that's when we realized uh, why do we want to recreate the wheel each time? So we'd rather just create a solution for people to use, point and click and build the store themselves. Mm -hmm. And that is how uh, Instant Easter was born. Yeah, uh, we launched uh, on a, a uh, September the twelfth, two zero zero one. I remember because it's one day after nine one one. So yeah, we, we launched on September the twelfth, two zero zero one. Um, and yeah, we've we, uh, we obviously grown since then. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, so take me back to the part when you learned how to code. Did you study it in university or did you just kind of pick it up on your own by having an interest in it? Yeah, I mean, not at all. The thing is, I studied mechanical engineering in uh, Imperial mm -hmm. College, right? So um, during that time, um, they didn't really teach us uh, programming at all. So it was just something that um, I took interest in and I learned online. Um, and I learned this uh, language called Cold Fusion. Yeah, um, it was yeah, it was one of the early web application uh, languages, and okay. that enabled me to build you know all the uh, different things I've built so far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's that's going back well before the days where you have all of these drag and drop, low code, no code sort of tools. It was a lot Definitely. more. I would imagine the mechanical engineering, the logic structures of that, lent itself well because you know you need you need to be able to have that sort of like format of frame of mind in order to be able to uh, build build it out yeah yeah definitely i mean obviously although they didn't teach us um coding per se right but uh to how to think logically how to think um as a machine would think you know because obviously uh you got to think of how uh you know loops within loops within loops you know to do things right so yeah. that logical uh mindset frame uh has sort of 
you know, help me throughout the year. It's really pretty. Okay. Okay. So I, I love the entrepreneurial journey because you kind of stumbled into it just to, just by just by the nature of some of your personal experiences with with uh, uh, the Sony and then the VCDs and that sort of thing. But so now, once you decided to launch Instant eStore, so you, mm-hmm. you realized why why reinvent the wheel every time. But when you go out to market and you start acquiring customers, what was the what was the process to get those initial customers? Was it a lot of like close friends, family connections that mm. were the initial testing group, or how did that begin? Uh, not at all, actually, because you got to remember this was way back in two zero zero one, right? And I was uh, based in in Penang, right? So mm. you can imagine in two zero zero one. Uh, friends and family and close friends knew pretty much nothing about online selling. <laughs> you know, uh, no one bought it online. You know, people in Malaysia just in that time, uh, literally, you were just uh, using Google to look for you know information. Uh, not Google yeah. actually, using Yahoo right, to mm-hmm. look for information. You know, so not so much. But throughout the, the times that you know we built um, website to sell the various things, uh, we managed to learn how. Well, I managed to learn how to you know do search engine optimization SEO. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, I knew how to get our sites to rank well. It was pretty easy before, obviously, uh, not as advanced as um, the Google algorithm is nowadays. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it was quite easy. So once you know a few tricks, uh, it's, it's easy to get ranked. So that was how uh, we got our first clients, literally, because uh, at, one, at one point we were ranked, I think, definitely in the top three for quite a few years for the terms like e-commerce solutions or shopping cart, shopping cart software. So you can imagine those are pretty much uh, key terms for what we're selling with Instant Eastern. Okay, okay. Yeah. And that, that initial traction, so you're, you're based in Penang, but where did the traction come from? Was it was it global by default or where was the most of the interest coming from? Yes, you're right. I mean, it was definitely global by default, uh, predominantly in the US. Yeah. Um, okay. Our clientele was about 70, 80% US, mm-hmm. uh, some in Canada and in in some in the UK. Uh, Asia, not so much. So for the first, I would say five, five to eight years, it was pretty much in the US, UK, and uh, Canada, uh, with mm-hmm. a few in Australia. Yeah, because this was during the early Web 1.0 days, where mm-hmm. you know not everyone uh, was a creator. The, the the fact that you know you want to sell online means you are one of the early adopters. Um, so so these are people who are more um, DIY uh, kind mm-hmm. of um, basis. So this tends to be more, I'm generalizing here, but this tends to be more of a Caucasian culture. Asians, we love things to be done for us. Not so much we don't like to do things ourselves, right? You know, so it was it's more of a DIY sort of culture. Um, so in the early days, it was definitely uh, in the, uh, in the England, well, in the Caucasian uh, countries. Yeah, okay. I, I, I do I do wonder because you you are going back a number of years into the the beginnings here. So when you're talking about servicing these other countries, you run into a number of challenges in regards to being able to facilitate payments for services mm-hmm. as well because this predates Stripe and predates a number of the services that we take for granted today. Yes. How, how did you work it out in those early days? I, I wonder. Even in those early days, there were uh, payment solutions, not many, um, uh, mm-hmm. granted, not many. Uh, in the early days, we were using a company called CC Now, you know, Credit Card Now, CC Now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they exist anymore. Um, but, you know, they were one of the few uh, companies or, or payment gateways that would accept um, clients from outside America. Because obviously, we were selling to clients in America, but our company was not incorporated in America. 
Yep. So our company is still incorporated in Malaysia. Uh, so they were one of the few ones that actually uh, accepted foreign merchants. Um, they they then sort of uh, dwindled off and uh, um, a new service called WorldPay. You know, WorldPay. Um, yeah. They they yeah. I think WorldPay still exists on under RBS, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, WorldPay came along where we used WorldPay for quite a number of years. But you're right. I mean, this was this predates the days where you know now when you want to use a, a payment solution, it's like you don't know which one to choose because there's so many. You know, uh, back then it was just one or two, you know, and uh, you, you, the thing is for us back then was pretty much we, we need to make sure we keep our um, fraud rates low because some people would just order and then, you know, file it as a fraud, right? Uh, yep. If the fraud rate goes above a certain level, they cancel their account and they ban mm-hmm. you. So imagine if you have only one or two providers and they ban you, you're pretty much out of business, you know? So yeah. it, different times, different uh, worries, I guess, yeah. Okay. Do you do you feel like uh, for the for the for the for the fraud side, you know, being a service provider from Malaysia to a decade ago, do you do you feel like the location of incorporation played into that aspect of them being able to just say, ah, I don't recognize this charge in my credit card, uh, that sort of thing, or do you think it was just kind of people gaming the system in the early days of the internet? Yeah, I think, you know, we were quite fortunate, to be honest. We were quite fortunate that we our fraud rate was pretty low mm-hmm. uh, compared to when we were selling VCDs. Uh, our fraud rate was higher because obviously people like to order something, get the physical goods and then say, I didn't order it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Whereas with the, yeah precisely. Whereas with a service like Instant Install, uh, the, the people who sign up for Instant Install, um, they don't do it on a whim because, yeah. you know, it's not something that, you know, the normal person signs up for. So mm-hmm. we were quite fortunate that our fraud rate was naturally low. Uh, and we were very, very mindful to use um, the uh, the payment name in the knee store that they can recognize. Yeah. So, of course, we did have a few chargebacks, but most of the time it was due to a case of, you know, I've forgotten the sign up for this. I didn't know it was this name. Um, and most of the time we cleared it up by, you know, just calling them and say, oh, yeah, I'll just call my bank to uh, cancel the chargeback. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, in- interesting. So most of most of the growth came out of uh, SEO, organic inbound uh, traffic. Yeah. Did you do much on the digital advertising side? Yes, uh, we did. Um, but once again, you have to realize during the early days, uh, the digital advertising uh, tools were not as advanced as we have now. I remember using um, a, a uh, you know the search engine go to. You know, go to mm-hmm. was the first paper click search engine, right? So we advertised that. Um, that that gave us a little bit of traction. And I think the early days, we most of our traction came from the organic search engines, plus um, a little bit of site sponsorship. You know, we we did sponsor a few uh, related news sites. Uh, obviously, this was back back uh, during the days where the sponsors I would just contact them or email them and say I want to sponsor it, and they'll just quote you a flat sum a month. You know, mm-hmm. so like maybe three thousand, four thousand US dollars, right? And you have a, a banner stuck there, you know, all the time. None of those rotation and stuff like that, right? So this was a, during the days where advertising was still very, very cheap. Um, yeah, so we did do a quite a well, I would say thirty percent of our business came from uh, mark digital advertising, uh, whereas seventy percent came from uh, search engines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So let, let's talk about the specifics of the product itself and how that's kind of evolved over time. Because obviously, the the the, the speed of internet, the sophistication of expectations on behalf of consumers of what e-commerce ought to look like, all of that's evolved quite a bit over the course of these ten years. 
Definitely. When you, when you look at product evolution and, and continuing to continuing to do the development of it, what are the kind of the processes that you have in place to recognize when updates and improvements need to be done? And how do you kind of get those feedback loops internally uh, developed as an organization? Mm. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty, very, very good question, Kevin. Yeah, um, a pretty loaded one as well, actually. Um, <laughs> so, so basically... Um, obviously, when we first built the solution, it was very, very simple. Literally, it helped you to build an online store. That's it, right? Um, it connected to a payment gateway, and you can process the orders. That's it. Of course, along the way, um, a lot of uh, requests come in where our clients wanted to wanted to be integrated with shipping, for example, um, stock management systems, warehouse systems, and then later on to marketplaces and stuff like that. You know, one, one of the key tenets that we always hold on to is if... Um, whatever is requested would be useful to help them to either grow their business or be more uh, optimal as in uh, help with their operations. This is something we consider. So we mm-hmm. put it into the considered queue, right? So before we, we get it uh, coded up, then we will get feedback from our clients. You know, this is these are things that we're considering. Vote on them, yeah? So uh, obviously, they're the ones that are more, more popular. We work on it first. Uh, and so on and so forth. But one of the key things I would say, um, I'm, I'm, well, let's say I'm a very frank person. So one of the key things I would say our missteps were, initially, we always thought we needed to build everything ourselves. You know, if, if a client wanted this particular feature, right, your program is right, build it, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the missteps I feel as compared to someone like Shopify, where, you know, they don't necessarily really build so many things themselves, but they build an API for other people to build things on their platform. So that was a key departure, um, you know, and, and this is obviously hindsight 2020, right? So that, that was one of the key uh, sort of uh, um, walks that we did not take. Um, we we tend, tended to do things, you know, within the team. Um, and if you ask me if we could uh, redo things, uh, one back like 10 years or so, um, that was that's one of the uh, directions that I would take to make it more of a platform and let other people do it. Because no matter how big a team is, right, um, there will definitely be more programmers outside than inside the company. If you get what I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, hindsight is always twenty twenty, so it's it's hard to have that clarity when you're definitely. when you're in the moment, especially when you're in early the early player. Uh, mm. Opening up the space and 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 working in it, it's it's hard to see the the popularity of platform plays that came years later. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there's, so let's let's keep let's keep on on this aspect of building out the customer base and and so forth. So as as you went through the years, what did you see as the key growth drivers, and how and how do you kind of manage it? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna venture a guess and say that you have these ebbs and flows that happen with it. That one channel is doing well and then it kind of softens up and you got to push towards another one. How do, how do you manage that over the course of time, over a number of years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right, right Kevin. Um, but during the early days, obviously, we saw a lot of traction in the US, um, like I said, US, Canada, UK, Australia, stuff like that. Um, and, you know, as times progressed and uh, as competition grew fiercer, um, you know, the people who, who signed up with us during the early days were, like I said, early adopters. Early adop- adopters generally don't care um, that you're not in their country. You know, mm-hmm. You're in Malaysia, great. You're in Australia, who cares, right? No, no yeah. one cares, right? Uh, but, you know, as time passed by where 
um, you know, each country has their own e-commerce solution provider and stuff like that. So we find that, you know, the people who were signing up then were no longer early adopters, but they were the more of a mass market, right? So people in the mass market generally uh, demand a certain high level of service. For example, they, they want you to be local. They want, uh, you know, 24-7 service and, and yada, yada, yada. Right, um, so they feel more uh, secure if they know that your office is somewhere nearby. Mm. Okay, so obviously we didn't, we don't have offices all over the world. Um, so we, we found that, and um, that kind of softened up. Yeah, but thankfully, obviously, this is also a time where you know e-commerce started to pick up in Malaysia. So you know now we are um, a bit more focused in in the Malaysian market, um, where whereas previously we were not. Uh, previously, you know, all our clients were pretty much outside of Malaysia. So now uh, we are looking towards Malaysian clients a bit more um, and realizing that, you know, this is a different breed of clients. Yeah. Um, obviously, these are these, well, they're they still DIY clients, but mm -hmm. they don't really want to get down and dirty as much. Yeah. So obviously, we, be, we need to add more automation and make things simpler um, and easier to use um, and to, to cater to this um, mass market. Now, I, I would venture to say the people who are starting to sell online now, um, they are no longer in the mass market. They are actually uh, um, the um, sort of late adopters already. Mm -hmm. yeah. So so these guys uh, have uh, even more of a um, challenge, I feel, to, to reach out to them because the fact that they haven't signed on you know, a few years ago means mm -hmm. that um, they, they are not as ready. So uh, we, we find that with the current group of uh, people, especially the bigger ones, uh, we need to provide more of an advisory service to them it's not just this is a solution, boom, get it done, right? Uh, but it, it's more towards uh, we need to advise them. This is what you can do. Um, they don't mind paying. That's good. That's a good part about it. They don't mind paying, but um, they want someone else to, to get it done for them, um, mm -hmm. build it for them, and then they manage it. So they don't want to do the building. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that that's the uh, um, trend that we've seen throughout the years. Okay. Yeah. How, do, how do you see some of the other trends that are out there? Because you know, you, when you when you look when you look at the West, you 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 obviously saw the rise of Amazon, and they kind of shifted from control it to having third party sellers onto their platform. Mm -hmm. Here in Southeast Asia, we have players like Shopee and Lazada. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they have some of their own issues, as as anyone that's kind of dug into them can can end up seeing. But you do see a number of these sort of like platforms, sell on our platform, those 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 style of plays. The run my own store versus be on a platform. How have you seen that kind of evolve within the markets here? Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, definitely, especially in Asia. Uh, number one, um, the Asian e-commerce scene started later uh, than mm -hmm. in the Western countries. And obviously by then, uh, you would have uh, some pretty... A, a strong players really like Amazon and stuff like that. So uh, a lot of stronger, bigger marketplaces sort of sprouting up. So the um, Asian market got into e-commerce around the same time as when marketplaces became popular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why if you actually look at the number of independent stores in Asia, uh, when I say independent, I mean independent websites as compared to yep. selling in the marketplace, Compared to the Western countries, uh, in Asia is less, way less. Uh, low is a lower percentage compared to the Western countries, because um, pretty much of the timing. Yeah, because when they enter the uh, the industry, uh, marketplaces are strong, and you know obviously with the marketplaces, the the story is always very very attractive in the sense that you know just post the products and you know people just buy without you doing any marketing. 
Sure. I mean, that's how the story goes. Yeah, that's how the yeah, story yeah, goes. Yeah, yeah. They, um, they have an installed base of traffic that and yes. eyeballs that are coming in to be able to view it. So you don't have to go out and chase to get people to come to my site and be the discovery exactly. issue, essentially. Yeah. But, but of course, the thing is, you know, like I always say, every single um, a, a thing is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Mm. So uh, marketplaces are good because they have traffic. But marketplaces are not good because they have competition. A lot of it. Yeah. And perfect competition with the listing just right next to you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I always say to people, a lot of people ask me, Charles, should I be selling on Shopee, Lazada, or my own online store, or what have you? Okay. So I always answer that question with another question. Right? My question is, imagine you're walking along the street and you see a 50 ringgit bill on the floor and a 100 ringgit bill on the floor. Which one do you pick up? Both, right? You don't just pick up a hundred ringgit bill, right? you pick up both, you know? So the answer is not so much where uh, should I sell here or there. It's not that. You should be selling everywhere, okay? Mm-hmm. And that is why, you know, obviously with Instant we have also built integrations with the top marketplaces where, you know, if you add new products to Instant obviously uh, automatically it pushes the products to the marketplaces, mm-hmm. yeah? And if orders come in, obviously we pull the orders from the marketplaces to your store. So you have one central uh, location to manage all your activity rather mm-hmm. than having to manage multiple places. Okay. Um, and it, yeah, so it does the uh, stock syncing as well. So, you know, you don't, you never uh, oversell that product. Yeah. Okay. So instantly, so if you will, uh, we no longer call ourselves an e-commerce store provider, right? It's, you know, it's omni-channel commerce. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where it is one system to control um, your, uh, different different channels where you sell, whether it's on the marketplace, your own online store, um, social media, Facebook Live, WhatsApp, what have you. Um, so we have links to all of those. Um, and when people uh, place an order, always it all comes back to your store. So it becomes a central management you know, system. Okay. So you you enable social commerce as well. So if if, so, if yeah. somebody's selling via their WhatsApp channel or or their Instagram feed, you're you're able to integrate across channels. Yes, precisely. So we have various integration points. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. one of them is a uh, live, and you can do a Facebook live. Um, and we have a uh, bot that handles comments because normally how Facebook live goes is even if, if you they're displaying something and say you're interested in this comment A1, right? So anyone who comments A1, obviously the, the bot will recognize it. Um, you send a message to, to the person with a link to, to purchase, stuff like that. Um, same thing happens um, during a social uh, sort of Facebook post. When people comment a lot of, in, in Asia and Malaysia, especially, uh, the most common comment, most common comment is PM, you know, PM, right? Mm-hmm. So rather than you having to answer the uh, PM message, uh, our bot does it uh, automatically and send them the link. Why? Um, yeah, so, so the, all those are built into Instant Store as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And the, 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 the bot, did you guys build that out yourself or did you use kind of like a, one of the pre-packed ones that like, I know Facebook has like a pre-packed one. There's a few mm. other ones that are out there in the market space. Yeah. Well, once again, uh, we are engineers, so we built it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not the wisest choice. Uh, well, I mean, we did use uh, um, some of the uh, Facebook technology. I think um, I can't quite remember the um, AI uh, engine that we use is by Facebook, right? I can't quite remember the name now, uh, but we use it to pass for um, the meaning of the message, right? But still we build the plumbing and everything uh, to make it work. Yeah. 
Um, okay. I guess that's a danger that I see because you know you you let a mechanic look at a car, they're like, okay, I can do this car. <laughs> you know what I mean? But <laughs> that may not be the best way to get a car. It might be better to just buy it. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. that is that slight danger that we constantly need to remind ourselves: do we need to build it, or can we, you know, repurpose something that's already available and do a joint venture, a collab with another company? Um, so this is one thing that you know we are way more conscious in doing now because we yeah. realize you know you can't afford to be an island in during this yeah. these days right yeah yeah it's it's easier said than done a lot of that uh, in regards to saying okay but it's it should be more of like a format of buy versus build decision mm. um but we're not quite able to easily uh easily analyze that yeah Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. So, so let, let, let me ask you then. So, like, what other integrations do you see as like the critical features that you guys have built out that really enables um, that it really enables your service? So, obviously, this kind of omni-channel. Uh, mm. You had mentioned reconciling with the stock. Sure. Um, yeah. What 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 is what are the key key features that when you when you talk about being kind of an all-in-one solution? What what are those aspects? Yeah, so basically an all-in-one solution just means that um, we integrate things or channels that will help you to sell um, different different sales channels. That's number one. Um, things like marketplaces, like I said, mentioned just now, marketplaces, uh, videos, social, stuff like that. Obviously, we have a POS, a point-of-sale solution as well, because a lot of people still have physical stores. Yeah, mm. So having a physical store that, that sort of syncs up with your online store makes sense, uh, especially on the customer loyalty program uh, kind of thing, right? Where no matter people buy in store or online, they still get loyalty points and they can you know use the loyalty points to claim for things. Yeah, so that part is cool. Uh, in addition to that, obviously we also integrate to make operations easier uh, with regards to fulfillment. Yeah, mm -hmm. so we are integrated with uh, quite a few uh, key fulfillment uh, providers, whether they are third-party logistics companies or. Um, you know, warehouses, you know, so we even have uh, sort of uh, integrations with some warehouse um, software that, you know, people would use to manage their own mini warehouse, if you will. Yep. So that is to help with operations. Um, obviously, we integrate with payment gateways, you know, just think about payment gateways because we serve a worldwide market. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, we are integrated with more than 80 payment gateways all over the world. Yeah. So you just imagine that just just maintenance on the AD payment gateways is a bit Every, of a, everybody has their own yeah. API that you're constantly having to make sure it's refreshed and up to date and all of that kind of stuff. Precisely, yeah, precisely, yeah. So so those are the main sort of uh, features and functionality. Of course, going forward, um, you know, look forward a little bit is uh, one of the key things that we are launching very very soon. Um, is a metaverse, you know, an e-commerce metaverse that we call universe. Yeah, okay. it's Y O U universe, as in U universe, right? Um, you know, where uh, uh, you'll be able to explore the 3D world uh, through through the game um, and be able to you know, play games and as well as browse products and buy the products. So okay. these products, some of them will be um, virtual and physical at the same time. So imagine buying a pair of shoes that your avatar could wear immediately. And having a real pair of shoes arrive like three days later, yeah. So, so this is the uh, bridging divide between the uh, virtual and the real world. Um, so that's the next thing that we are launching uh, very, very shortly. Uh, universe. So let, let's let's dig into that a little bit because that's. I mean, you you've navigated through the different channels that e-commerce has penetrated. 
whether your website, the platform, social, etc. So now this is interesting, moving towards the metaverse and seeing uh, seeing it as being the next potential channel. So mm. when you when you look at it, you know it's it's still still a relatively new space. So when you're when you're thinking about it. You know, are you going after more of like the gaming segments or where do you see that entry point in, in order to onboard onto the that as, as an avenue? Yeah, so so the thing is, I've been speaking, obviously, because this is a new project, I'm speaking to all kinds of people, right? Um, and a lot of times I say, you know, we are starting a metaverse. I, and always when I say metaverse, one or two reactions happen. Number one, the first kind is, you know, they, they have a, a bit of a glazed look and they, they nod their head. So, you know, you know, they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the second one is like, oh, interesting, the metaverse, right? So then they're trying to figure out what kind of metaverse you're doing. Okay. So the, the way we look at it right now, um, people that we've been speaking to, people who are maybe 30 years and below, younger, younger than 30 years, right? Um, they, they tend to get the, the metaverse idea pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we tell them, you know, this is what you can do in the metaverse, obviously you can play games, uh, um, you know, hang out with friends and, and buy things, you know. So it's literally a, a universe that you uh, spend time in virtually. So mm-hmm. they get that. Yeah. Um, obviously, with the um, slightly older demographic, um, I'm 45 this year. So mm-hmm. it's my, my de- demographic is, is the same uh, in, the, in the older <laughs> demographic, right? So when I tell my friends about it, they'll be like, why would you want to do it? You know what yeah. I mean? So we do realize that um, this is definitely something that will be popular in the future. Yeah, mm-hmm. how far in the future? Hard to tell. Hard to tell. So right now, you are right in in saying that because we are targeting a slightly younger demographic, um, anywhere from uh, maybe fifteen to thirty years old, um, it's not going to be just pure commerce. Because if, if it was, um, I, I think it's it's not going to do very very well. So mm-hmm. that's why we are very mindful. Uh, to mix it with uh, fun things to do, fun games you can play um, mm-hmm. and explore. Obviously, we have NFTs inside that as well. Um, so, so the thing is, you know, with NFTs, they they have been having a a bad rap, you know, uh, um, previously, right? Yeah, or even yeah. right now, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so, so the thing some some people say, you know, NFT, NFTs are great. Some people are like, you know, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Uh, why would I want to buy an NFT? You're going to buy a physical. Uh, why you want to buy an NFT of an image where you can get a physical uh, photo, right? You know, a physical painting. Uh, but the thing is, the way we see it, uh, these is these questions crop up because it's still very, very early days. Yeah. You know, I remember the days when we started, uh, um, you know, selling things online and a lot of people didn't see the point of that. Sure. Right? You know, so we, we see this same trend over and over again when something new, uh, a new technology is introduced. Um, you always have what we call the uh, initial um, exuberance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that leads to a bubble. And sooner or later, the bubble will pop. Okay, obviously, in the crypto industry, um, it popped. And, and, and the uh, popping is, is quite drastic, obviously. A, a, few, uh, a few pops, I think. Yes, precisely. It keeps going, it keeps going. Yeah. Precisely. But the thing is, you know, what is, it's, what's interesting is what happens after it pops. You know, yeah. so just like the dot-com boom and then the dot-com bust. Um, the real services that we're using today, even today, uh, were built during the bust days, not during the boom days, but during the bust days. Because uh, um, when the market is a bit cooler, that's when you know uh, people have a bit more time to think. Because you actually need to think of something useful. Because during mm-hmm. a boom time, you know you, you can throw any any anything online, and, and you know you'll be valued at a high value, right? You have a high valuation. But you know during this cooler 
uh, um, winter markets, that's when you really need to sit down and think, you know, what is the real value proposition proposition here? Why, why would someone want to do it, right? So I, I'm, you know, I'm uh, hopeful and optimistic um, that, you know, although it's a bit of a crypto winter, eh, but, yeah. you know, this is a good time to, to do some serious building. Not the best time yeah. to raise, <laughs> but uh, a good time to build, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think the I think the space has uh, lost some of its heat, let's say. Um, yes. Yeah. But I I do agree that like you know oftentimes when you're talking about building something, you're you're you fall into one or two buckets, and I've I've heard a number of like uh, venture folks out there say this. So it's, I certainly didn't coin it, but they say you know when you're when you're looking at investing into 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 a startup, you're either going to invest too early. Mm-hmm. Or you're investing way too early. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's so good one. I, I think there, there's something that plays into that when you're trying to figure out where where are things moving to. You know, like mm-hmm. going on selling online. Same thing. People people were skeptical about it. Talking yep. about selling through social media. Why am I yep. going to buy through something from some random eighteen year old with a feed? Oh, because mm-hmm. they have 50 million followers and a lot of uh, a lot of traction. So it's like in hindsight, it starts to make sense. And it's more of like, where are people spending their time and trying to understand how to tailor it to the experience that's associated with it? Yeah, precisely. I think that was the main reason why we started Universe, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Right. I remember it was maybe about two or three years ago, definitely about two years ago during the uh, uh, initial onset of the pandemic. Where you know I've got a fourteen-year-old daughter, so she was twelve then, mm-hmm. and I remember because obviously she was doing online learning at home, right? And I go to her bedroom and I see uh, um, she's talking to her friends uh, mm-hmm. in front of the computer. I was like, you know, what are you doing? I'm hanging out with my friends. I was like, um, are you chatting? Oh, no, no, no. We're, we're hanging out in a game, right? a game called Roblox. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. She was twelve, and I mean, everyone plays Roblox, right? Every kid plays Roblox. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. yeah. So I was like. So what do you do in the game, right? Because we're used to uh, games having a mission, for example. Mm-hmm. But the, the games I used to play, you know, you're going to save a princess or kill the uh, evil general, you know, yeah, stuff yeah. like that, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. um, so she's like, yeah, well, we just walk around. I was like, no, no, that's not a game. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, um, um, they're, they're just walking around and talking, right? There's no real uh, structure to it. Yeah, so yeah. At, at first, I didn't understand it, right? And, and she then what she said just changed my mind because she says, you know, you hang out with the friends by going to a cafe and sit down and talk. Mm-hmm. And this is our way of, of hanging out. Yeah. Um, when they hang out physically, that's when it gets a little bit awkward. Yeah. You know, you have a group of, of people who always hang out and play Roblox, right? You, you put them around a table, take away the devices, they'll be like, Ugh. it's as if mm. they don't know each other, right? Yeah. You give them the devices and then, wow, they, they, are, they are back in it again because... I, I then realized this is how the uh, younger generation, they, they communicate with other people. Because when I'm just sitting in front of you, let's say I don't have a common topic in your conversation, it makes it awkward, right? Mm-hmm. So we talk about the weather, we talk about, you know, common things, yeah? So mm-hmm. for them, instead of talking about the weather, they're like, they're in the game. They're doing something together, right? And from there, the point of conversation just naturally flows. So I always say, you know, people in our generation, uh, we spend a lot of time online, whereas for for my daughter and and her generation, they spend a lot of time in game. Yeah, um, so realizing that and that's where people are spending the time, uh, it made sense for us to to build the metaverse. Uh, you know, and, and try to get there a bit earlier. We we realize we are early, um, but you know, once again, I real I I think um, it's it's when it's early that 
the playing field is, is more level. Just mm. imagine if something is really well trodden, uh, it'd be very, very hard for a startup to to uh, penetrate the field because, you know, you have all the big boys with a lot of money, you know, thrown in there, right? So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. Okay. Okay. So when when you when you look at this, uh, this is this is more of like a long game. So you're 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 basically look adding in and planning for the future. But mm-hmm. do you have any sort of specific expectations in regards to like what you define as success from like milestone to milestone, or is it more of like build it, continue to focus on it, and just see where the system goes? I think obviously you know we do have uh, internal milestones that we are looking to achieve because. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we didn't have that, then it'd be very hard to classify whether it's a success or a failure. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't measure it, it's, it's very hard to classify it, right? So we do have internal milestones in the sense of um, how many uh, users we in, we aim to onboard into the system. And that's obviously milestone number one, right? Uh, we have a milestone that, you know, month three, month six, uh, month 12, after a launch, uh, we have uh, milestones there. And the onboarding is just the first step of it. Um, the second step is arguably even more important than that is, you know, how many people are coming back, right? Uh, because a lot of times it's easy, easier uh, to get people to try a system, but not as easy to get them to come back if it's not good. Okay? Mm-hmm. So so for us, um, is these two key uh, um, sort of milestones that we are focusing on, how many people can onboard to the system um, and, you know, how what, what percentage of people can we get them to come back and uh, continue to use it? Yeah, because unless they spend time in the universe, um, because this universe is not a transactional place. It's not like a online study, go in, right. buy, and then get out of there, right? Um, so if anything, this is more uh, along the lines of a social media, mm-hmm. as, if you will, or um, a, a you know marketplace, a bit more, uh, more, more social media side, right? Where you tend to spend a bit more time there. Yeah. So yeah, for us, those two key metrics are important. Okay. Do you see that at some point the metaverse is going to have digital replicas of physical stores to where like the the storefront, for lack of a better way of putting it, is in, inside of the metaverse in some shape or form that's, that's familiar? Do you think it's going to be entirely different, experiential, what, whatever the case may end up being? Or is it too early to tell what it's going to look like? Well, I think, you know, right now, like I say, it is a bit early, but, you know, there are a few things I can imagine happening. Um, once once again, I don't think um, the metaverse should be uh, 100% realistic because let's, let's put it this way, right? Uh, you want realism, there's nothing realer than the real world. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so the fun part about being in a game is you can do things you can't do in real, in real life. Mm. Um, so it has to have that, um, it has to straddle the divide between realism and, and a form of escapism, right? Um, so I do envision um, physical stores having their storefronts in the metaverse. Um, but if you ask me, hey, will they just have that and not have the physical versions? Right now, my answer is no, because obviously mm-hmm. it takes quite a bit of time to transition. Um, and you know, the, these guys who are like um, 15, 20 years old, need to grow up uh, to be like 30 years old and 30, 40 mm-hmm. years old, right? Uh, um, before it becomes really, really mainstream. Yeah. Um, okay. So then the, the short answer to that is it will be a dual system for now. Uh, mm-hmm. But eventually, um, I, I would imagine having it um, in the metaverse makes sense because you can then um, have the full experience, the physical experience of a store that's, you know, in could be in another country, for example. Mm-hmm. Because right now, if you wanted to 
uh, visit a, uh, a flagship store in in uh, Paris, for example. I need to physically fly there. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, obviously, in a few years' time. I mean, now technology is not too bad, but in a few years' time, technology will improve, uh, where the experience will uh, obviously be elevated. So mm-hmm. then I can um, experience the full breadth of it, even though I'm sitting, you know, in a small little apartment in Penang, for example. Yeah. Very cool, very cool. I I I love kind of the 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 speculation on what what the future is going to hold and 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 start planning around it. Okay. Um, but let, let me let me wrap up here because this is this is, this is super interesting. But let me wrap up here with the with the standard questions that I ask everyone. And yeah. so for you, is there what is the tech tool that you just can't live without? Right. Um... I'm gonna be boring here. Uh, it's it's gonna be my iPhone, <laughs> you know. So uh, as as a consumer, uh, it's the iPhone. Uh, as a more of a tech person, um, I'm still pretty much of a coder as well. So um, one of the things I fire up every single day is, is Sublime Text, you know. So yeah, it's one of the uh, text editors that we use. Um, I can't live without it. Um, so yeah, so th- these two tools, I would say, yeah. Okay. Okay. And so last question here is. If you were to talk to another founder that's just getting started out, mm. what would be the biggest piece of advice that you could offer? I mean, coming from a serial entrepreneur, knowing what you've gone through, what what piece of advice could you offer? Yeah, um, I think there are two two kinds of people that I meet. Yeah, you know, because I also do quite a few uh, sort of mentoring uh, mentoring uh, sessions with, with uh, startup founders, and mm-hmm. there are two kinds of startup founders I see. Uh, the first kind are. Uh, people who want to build a startup mm-hmm. okay um once again i didn't want to build a startup right i was just solving a problem and mm-hmm. i built a startup in the process of solving the problem yeah so for to, for those kind of people i would say focus on uh, what are the real problems or things you can potentially do to make someone's life better don't focus so much on of thinking i want to build a startup Right. But, you know, solve the problem first. The startup comes, you know, as you solve the problem for people. Right. So that's number one. And number two is uh, for people who tend to overthink things a little bit. Um, and, and I place myself in the second category a little bit now is sometimes the more, you know, uh, the more you realize the, the less, you know, mm-hmm. you get what I'm saying. So it, you get a little bit like paralysis by analysis. Yeah. So, um, most of the time, you really don't know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. Yeah, you can't control that. But what you can control is what actions you do today. right? So if, if you have an idea, um, definitely you know, test it out cheaply. Don't spend, don't, don't throw the farm at it, right? But test it out cheaply. And then you know, see what the, the market tells you. A lot of people obsess about you know, uh, thinking what, what people would say, what people would do. Um, you really don't know until you put it out into the market. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it does come back to building a very, very simple MVP to test out um, your hypothesis. Yeah. So in short, just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. 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 And, like the, the, the Nike saying, just do it. Uh, yeah, you you have to get out there. You have to get out into the market. You have to yeah. get the feedback. Otherwise, so many times, like an idea is great. Execution is what matters. And if you don't Definitely. get out there and start working the market and putting a product out there, uh, you don't really have anything. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Charles, this is this has been fantastic. I, I really appreciate you taking the time, having a chat with me. This is this has been great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show, Kevin. You know, it's nice uh, chatting with you. Perfect. Thank you.
All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of The Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin from Indelible Ventures, and this is The Sea of Startups.